0: Hi, it's Manika here. Today, we're bringing you one of our favorite episodes of City Space, another podcast from The Globe and Mail. Hope you like it.
1: Immigration makes Canada better. It's said so often it verges on being a cliché, but it also happens to be true. In a world where openness to immigration ebbs and flows, and sometimes with tragic consequences, it should be said that Canada finds itself in a pretty remarkable place, Broadly speaking, we have political consensus that welcoming immigrants is a good thing, if for no other reason than the cold, hard math of it all. Canada's consistently low birth rates mean that we can't replace retiring workers at the pace that our economy needs. So we rely on these infusions of human talent to keep our country running.
0: Look, folks, uh, it's simple to me. Canada needs more people. Canadians understand the need to continue to grow our population if we're going to meet the needs of the labour force, if we're going to rebalance a uh, worrying demographic trend, and if we're going to continue to reunite families and to do right by the world and make good in our commitments to support some of the world's most vulnerable...
1: That's Sean Fraser, Canada's immigration minister, when he announced last year that the federal government was setting an ambitious new target. By 2025, the aim is to bring in half a million permanent residents a year, That's an increase of 25% from 2022. And many of them will be headed for our cities, which tend to be nexuses for newcomers. The numbers for Canada in that regard are pretty incredible. In Vancouver, nearly three quarters of the population is a first or second generation newcomer. And for the greater Toronto area, that number is nearly four of every five people. As they say, if we build it, they will come. We've built a country with a high quality of life, And so people have come from all over the world. But here's something else to think about. If they come, have we built enough? After all, newcomers need, among other things, a roof over their heads. But as we know, Canada's dealing with a pretty profound housing crisis, where the competition is already so stiff. With little supply and high prices, resentment has been building among Canadians for years. So what's going to happen when a record number of people come to our cities looking for a place to live? This is an existential point, not just for the newcomers, who deserve a place to exist, of course, but for the bigger question of immigration in Canada. We can never take it for granted that Canadians will always be as welcoming as they have been. And adding more competition to an overheated housing crisis risks throwing tinder onto an active flame. Immigration is a broad and complicated issue that touches on so many other ones, it's about labor. It's about infrastructure. It's about social services. And all of those things are covered by different levels of government. It's a bit of a mess. And in that mess, immigrants can get scapegoated when the people who already live here experience problems with labor, infrastructure, social services. You get it. And politicians around the world prove time and time again that they're all too happy to make hay of that. Welcome back to CitySpace. I'm Adrian Lee. In this episode, we're talking about what immigration means for our cities. How will they handle the huge surge of hundreds of thousands of new people over the next three years? What's the big plan for housing them? And could more immigration actually help relieve our housing crisis? That's coming up after the break. Mike Moffitt is the Senior Director of Policy and Innovation at the Smart Prosperity Institute, a policy think tank based out of the University of Ottawa. He's also an Assistant Professor of Economics at the Ivy School of Business. He spends a lot of time thinking about the benefits and complications that more immigration might bring when it comes to the housing crisis in our cities.
0: You know, it's it's a complicated topic, but I think overall, there, there are certainly challenges to... Integrating so so many new people to the country, whether again they they come through permanent residency or non permanent residency, so I, I think it's a challenge that we need to take seriously. That uh, you know having these housing shortages is not good for for sort of existing Canadians, but it's also not good for uh, you know it's it's not good for that the the talent that we're trying to uh, attract and retain to, uh, to to cities like Toronto.
1: Like many economists, Mike thinks that higher immigration targets have the potential to help our country in a lot of different ways. And the biggest reason? Canada is getting old,
0: and quickly. The baby boomers are retiring, just as they are in other countries, and this this presents a, a challenge when it comes to sort of generational turnover. And we've seen, you know, countries like Japan and com- countries like Italy. You know, the challenges you have when you you have a larger and larger population of seniors and a smaller and smaller working age population, uh, you know, it used to be about uh, for, for every retired person, there'd be seven workers. Now it's getting closer to about two to one. So, you know, how do we finance our long-term care of homes, CPP, and all of these things that, you know, our, our seniors expect and deserve if we don't have that working age population?
1: He also believes that increased immigration will help with our housing supply problem, which is part of the reason homes have gotten so expensive.
0: So certainly I, I think the, the the biggest issue that we have is just that, that disconnect between how many homes that we're building and how fast the population I, I, is growing. Um, you know, the vast majority, over 90 percent of the housing we build is is market-built housing. And that market needs workers of all kinds. But our immigration system
1: isn't so inclusive.
0: Canada's immigration system works works on a point system, where you get a, a certain amount of points if you, uh, depending on your, your your fluency in one of our two official languages, your credentials, your level of education, and so on. But I think where the where the challenges is, or or what we need to do about it, is is think about what what those skills are, you know, what those those talents are. So, for example you know i'm a i'm a university professor think tank guy uh and my dad uh was a sheet metal worker built a lot of uh heating and cooling in apartment buildings back in the back in the 60s and 70s our immigration system is highly biased towards bringing in guys like me and highly biased against bringing in guys like my dad And I think we need to balance that out a little bit. You know, I think there is a role to bring in more electricians and roofers and plumbers so that immigration can be the solution to our housing crisis and not one of the things accelerating it. And again, I think I think we should look to to change that where, you know, sort of recognizing that, yeah, we need uh you know we need these sheet metal workers and yeah it will be a bit of a challenge integrating them if uh they're there they only have remedial english and french but that's something worth worth doing given uh given the shortages that we see in the skilled trades
1: from mike's perspective the relationship between immigration and housing is strained because the different levels of government just can't seem to get on the same page the federal government is setting immigration targets But the municipal and provincial governments are largely responsible for providing the housing, services, and infrastructure that allow new Canadians to settle and thrive. When these three levels of government fail to execute things together, urgent and major projects, you know, like fixing our housing crisis, can really fall apart.
0: The first first thing that we could do is set our immigration targets out longer and not just say, "Okay, this is, you know, this is the immigration target for next year to uh, better allow provinces and municipalities to 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 plan we we need to coordinate better our our housing plans our transit plans uh with our population growth plans and when it comes to housing that every level of government has has different levers that the 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 municipalities Uh, control a lot of the the zonings and approvals process and some of the infrastructure. Uh, The provincial government plays a role um, on province-wide zoning and infrastructure rules. They play a big role on the number of skilled tradespeople, which can uh, affect uh, how many homes uh, you can build. And then the federal government plays a big role on the housing side. Uh, They control the tax, most of the tax system, um, and whatever tax incentives you you have in place can either encourage or or discourage building. Obviously they control the the immigration side and not just the number of uh newcomers, but also you know, what skills do they have? How many of them are uh in the skilled trades and 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 so on? Uh, you know, how how much money are we going to spend towards social housing and co-op housing and and you know non-market forms of housing? So all three levels of government have to work together, along with the higher education sector, the builders and developers, and, and the skilled trade sector, or else we're going to continue to have the, the, these policy disconnects.
1: When Canadians talk about the end of the housing crisis, we're usually hoping for a correction, which is to say that the market comes back down to earth. And in some ways, immigration does work against that. More demand in our biggest and most desirable cities is going to keep prices high.
0: There is a zero-sum element to the, to the housing crisis, at least in, in part, where uh, existing homeowners uh, and existing owners of rental property want prices high. Uh, renters and, and those trying to buy into the market want prices low. I, I I certainly believe that uh, having higher rates of, of uh, newcomers to the country, whether again they be permanent residents or non permanent residents, does act as sort of a floor on how low uh, rents and home prices can go. I I don't believe that that's the necessarily the intent of policymakers. I think they're more worried about worried about the labor market and and worried about the ratio between. Uh, the number of retired people versus the number of workers and, uh, you know, having enough of a tax base to pay for for, for the health care system and, and that kind of thing. But certainly that's, uh, you know, having robust population growth does somewhat per- prevent how, how low uh, house prices will get.
1: If there's one thing we've learned about how cities work, it's that there are always unintended consequences. That's just how it goes especially when you're dealing with this many people on this large a scale. The more important thing to think about is what we do about the consequences as they emerge. After the break, we'll speak to Toronto's chief planner about how the city is preparing to adequately house and support the influx of new Canadians. Greg Lintern is the chief planner for the city of Toronto, a position he's held since 2018. Here's our conversation. Really appreciate you taking the time.
2: Yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, chatting about uh, housing and growth and all that great stuff that's happening in the city of Toronto.
1: Yeah, I mean, speaking of great stuff, I mean, these are heady times for cities uh, in Canada, Canada. Uh, Canada is hoping to welcome a record-breaking number of immigrants over the next three years, annual targets of no less than 465,000, a milestone goal of 500,000 new permanent residents in 2025. And you know, Toronto has obviously seen immigration waves in the past, but this one seems to be particularly large. Uh, that's forthcoming for Canada and certainly Canada's biggest city. So, what is Toronto doing to prepare for this?
2: You know, it's it's a a big number. And that, that's something that we are constantly challenged with even more so now because of housing affordability. I like to you know, bite an elephant one bite at a time. In a way, your question is, is, is about how do we get after this? Um, we have been uh, approving a lot of housing in Toronto. Over the last five years, we've approved 165,000 new residential units the number of units that actually gets built in Toronto relates more to the capacity of our uh, construction capacity, like our ability to actually build and all of those external market factors. So when we approve housing annually around 28,000 over the last five years, we actually complete about half of that. It's like a two to one ratio. So we're, in a bit of a pickle around our capacity to actually uh, build the amount of housing that's going to be needed to meet uh, those, those immigration levels.
1: Yeah. Well, when you say we're in a pickle, I mean, is that just a matter of supply? Is that just a matter of we need to be building more and, and, and getting more residential units?
2: Yeah. You know, it it is part of it. I, I would not approach the whole supply and demand discussion by breaking it down a little bit, it, because it's, it is, yes, it's about supply, the actual amount that we approve, the actual amount, as I said, that gets constructed, the ability of the industry to actually increase their capacity to build. We need the houses built. We, you can't live in an approval. You, <laughs> you need a house to be built. So part of that is supply, absolutely, no question. But it also relates to need. And when you look at the need of our population groups, are we building enough seniors housing? Are we building enough family-sized housing? Are we building enough grade-related housing? Not everybody wants to live in a tower. Not everybody wants to live in a mid-rise. Are we building a city of different scales? Are we building affordable housing? Are we building rental housing? So you break down that big supply picture, and we're probably doing very well, pretty well on a 600-square-foot, uh, one-bedroom condo. We're, we're pumping them out, no problem. But not everybody can afford that. So are we building enough rental? Probably not building enough rental. Are we building enough grade-related housing to meet the the needs of people who want to age in place in their community? Probably not. Are we building enough seniors' housing in long-term care facilities? So you begin to break it all down. And you have to develop kind of a diversified strategy, a pretty sophisticated strategy. And we've got something called the um, housing action plan that gets at uh, a couple of things. It it, it gets at direct uh, development of housing, uh, subsidized and affordable housing, but it also gets at enabling housing because we want the private market to have as many opportunities as possible to build housing.
1: Well, I want to focus uh, a little bit here on on that affordable piece, just because, you know, for folks, there are a lot of folks who agree that and I think rightly so, that immigration is a positive force, a net good for a city, for a society. Uh, at the same time, you know, we're seeing these newcomers enter a city where the housing market is already tight, where affordable housing is already quite scarce. I guess my question is, are the concerns fair? Are, are folks right to be worried that the, more, uh, that the more newcomers there are, the tougher it will be? To get a place in the city they live, uh, I've heard you know a lot of discussion,
2: almost in the way that you framed it, that the trick is, uh, and there there are lots of tricks with with these propositions, is that um, we have you know the federal government, the provincial government, the municipal government, we all have levers to pull, and if the federal government is setting that rate, immigration level that they're setting. The You know, the need to attach that to levers that they can pull that help the financial side of housing, uh, they could uh, help us and help housing constructors with um, tax relief that they control, for example, that go right into the uh, whether or not a pro forma works for housing or not. So you know, we we make that case regularly to the federal government around the the fact that they can make building either more or less expensive through their tax system. Uh, and making that connection is important, and it's an important role that we play with advocacy. But certainly, uh, participation of the federal government, the participation of the provincial government, directly either the various ways that the city has uh, attacked housing through its own land assets, for example. So there's a lot of work on the the regulatory policy side at the local level. the The province is changing quite regularly. That the planning policies of the province. Maybe it would be good for them to take a bit of a pause and let us all catch up.
1: Right. Well, that's a crucial point, right? That the, the federal government governs immigration, but uh, a lot of those, a lot of those immigration targets really affect where people live the most, which really are our cities and the municipal governments that govern those. And then in the interim, there's provincial governments that provide many services that, that look at some of the things that you just mentioned around, around labor. But there's more to supporting new folks in a city than just building houses, right? I mean, there's, there's thinking about labor. There's thinking about, uh uh services and infrastructure. So can you speak a little bit to what other services and infrastructure the city has to provide be, and and sort of how those things can be supported by a government that is a little bit tripartite.
2: It's the other side of this discussion in a way because we think of um the place that you that you live if you're privileged enough to have a a warm a warm place to lay your head at night and uh you think about the the parks that you go to, the public spaces that you go to, literally you 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 don't even probably think about turning on the tap or flushing the toilet. You you think about the transit system or the bike lanes or the roads that you use. We we call that infrastructure, <laughs> social infrastructure as well. Whether or not you need social supports, you need to go to the community center. You need daycare, uh, public schools, um, healthcare. You name it. It's a long list of so of hard and soft infrastructure, social infrastructure and all of this has to be bought and paid for so uh we talk about this concept of building complete communities where we're, when we're conceiving of new areas of the city that are changing um i think about Downsview for example probably in 30 years will be the size of the city of peterborough like over a hundred thousand people uh you don't just build housing there you build parks you build sewers you build water lines You build schools. I think they're looking at probably five or ten schools that need to be built. But some of it uh, may require partnerships with other levels of government. Some of it may come through uh, the taxation system in different levels. But we can't forget that we need a strategy to do that. And the provincial system uh, that was introduced with Bill 23 last year, it actually changed some of the financing system for municipalities in Ontario. And, uh, the amount of revenue that we have coming in to build that infrastructure is now less. Over 10 years, it's about a billion two less in affordable housing. For other kinds of infrastructure, it's a considerable reduction in the amount of, of money that we use to build parks and other, uh, facilities. But, uh, the clock is ticking because we plan and build on a, you know, a, a cycle. We don't just pick up a pen and draw a sewer. And build it the next week, and it does work on a like a one, two, three year cycle. So we got to be uh, resolving any dispute we have about funding infrastructure to, in order to keep that infrastructure going. Because um, again, you can't you can't uh, just expect people to arrive in the city, uh, whether they're from Manitoba or Mumbai, and uh, not have. Um, you know, be able to turn on the water and and flush their toilet. That is not the standard of of living that we that we expect
1: and the quality of life that we have in here in the city. Mm-hmm. Well, it's absolutely right. Your point that the clock is ticking. Uh, and earlier, you you mentioned that governments uh, have changed plans, programs, and policies so often that you sort of are left hoping hey, it would be great to catch up. So, my question to you is. You know, twenty twenty five. That's eighteen months away. You know, your your cycles of planning have been cycled through. Are our cities ready for this wave of newcomers?
2: The problems and the solutions have been laid out, and it's a it's a matter now of turning our attention to getting that construction industry capacity up to a level that can produce housing. We've set a housing pledge goal that the province asked us to agree to of two hundred eighty five thousand homes. So that's the amount that's been calibrated that we need by 2031 and as i pointed out we're not building at that pace we're probably approving at that pace but we're not building at that pace you know one, one thing the city has to focus on for sure is when somebody is ready to build i'm not just talking about the people that invest in real estate try to make deals and flip land i'm talking actually about the people that want to pull a permit so w- when we've got builders who want to, you know, pull a permit and work with us to get those permits issued, we've really got to focus on that tail end of the, of the approval process to put them in a position to build. But we don't control all the levers, whether it's interest rates or everything else, the supply chain and uh, labor shortages and everything else. I talked about that, that place I, I saw today, uh, and and the story you know that the developer was telling us was all the the challenges that they've had through the course of building through the pandemic. Probably he said a year and a half of delay on their side of the line, just dealing with labor, just dealing with supply, just dealing with economic factors that that they con- don't control either. And frankly, sometimes the feds and the and the province don't control. So uh, this is a a very challenging you know question that you're asking. And uh, I think, again, a lot of the uh, remedies are there. And and it's going to take a combination of, you know, really hard work on the part of the public and private sector, but a lot of political will, and a lot of political diligence to see uh, some of these ideas actually turned into into action.
1: Right? Well, yeah, the, the remedies are there, the, the goals have been set, the targets have been laid out. Um, but at the same time, you know, the federal immigration announcement, the plan that plan has also been made you know the those immigrants, those newcomers are coming, so I guess what is the worst case scenario if these building goals, which it seems like we're maybe a little bit behind on, what happens if those things aren't met
2: i I honestly don't know i I think people may cho- may choose to locate in other areas, certainly from an affordability point of view. there's been a lot written about about um, dr- drive until you qualify i think is the the slogan i've heard, but uh whether they choose to to locate in other in other areas of the province of Ontario, or for that matter um, in Canada, um, whether or not they begin to decide that they don't want to come here because of economic challenges. I think there are plenty of opportunities that people recognize that comes with Canada when they when they come here, but it has to be uh, a complete suite for them of being able to. To find accommodation but i i do know what we have to do is pull the levers that we can at least at, at the municipal level and continue to advocate provincially and federally about what they need to do to uh to make this whole system work these things remember these things are imperfect as well you're dealing with uh, a lot of things that aren't uh as sometimes well connected as you would think
1: they are oh totally i mean i mean certainly in canada we we have you know try if not more jurisdictional you know situations and housing is is really that that big nexus of it um and we talk about that right we talk about that here that uh cities are these places where you have levers and one lever does one thing and then a a suite of other things happen as a result of that, and you have to pull another lever to deal with those Um, exactly and, and and you've talked about this a little bit earlier but i sort of wanted to just go back to it which is you know the city really does uh, pull a lot of levers in housing to incentivize development to incentivize private developers and the market to to get involved there are obvious reasons for that they are the primary movers and the primary folks who are able to make that stuff happen and quickly but you know are there alternative housing delivery models that can be more heavily invested in you spoke a, a little bit about them before from Toronto's perspective but is there something that we can do that that goes beyond private sector engagement here?
2: Well, the you know the province had a pretty robust nonprofit sector in the 90s um, and before that, people may be familiar with St. Lawrence uh, in the city of Toronto downtown. St. Lawrence neighborhood built in the 70s, um, comprised in part of market housing, but also co-op housing, where it's like a, a more of a, a nonprofit model that had uh, cooperative uh, ownership and and cooperative operating of long-term housing uh, so there are there are definitely other models there's there's probably a whole continuum of models around the world where you have direct state built housing you have a lot of tax supported uh, private housing a long time ago in the in the 60s there were programs from cmhc that uh, supported uh, a lot of rental housing construction in Toronto through mortgage support and other taxation relief and and they were they were highly productive highly productive matching of um, the private industry and and um, the weight of uh, of government taxing uh, authority and and uh, policy behind it so there are lots of models and continued you know participation cooperation, In all the sectors, I I would never think that it's it's an all public or an all private solution. And and certainly back again, back in the 60s, there's something called limited dividend where people agreed to a limited return uh, in exchange for favorable financing. So we accept to continue to get really creative. And sometimes the some of these old ideas are, are making a comeback.
1: There's a lot to think about and there's a lot for you to do. So I appreciate you taking the time with us.
2: I really enjoyed it. It's uh, it's uh, something that everybody's engaged with, and uh, the more people that become engaged in the conversation, uh, I think the better off we'll be finding the solutions.
1: On the next episode of City Space, it's summertime, and that means it's festival season. It's an integral part of city life, creating an urban space for immigrants to show off and celebrate where they're from, especially if they're new in town. We'll look at why cultural festivals are so important to cities and how they can help immigrants integrate on both a social and psychological level. City Space is produced by Julia Delorentis Johnston and Kyle Fulton. Our theme song is by Andrew Austin. Our executive producers are Kieran Rana and Alicia Sani. Thanks to Mike Moffitt and Greg Lindtern for joining us today. If you like what you heard, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and tell your favorite city dweller about City Space, too. I'm Adrian Lee. Thanks for listening,
0: and talk to you soon.